So, as we come to Numbers chapter 9, we come to the text where they're about to roll out. We've been studying this. They've done the census, the military census, the Levite census. They're on the move, and they're about to find their new identity. They came out of Egypt as slaves, 2.5 million people probably. 600,000 men at 21 or older were able to go to war. That's a large standing army through the census, the conscription, the draft. And everything's ready to go. I mean, it's all, it's all happening. It's ready to go. And so it's been a full year since they left Egypt. And we pick it up with that background that they've been in the desert. They've been in the wilderness. And they've been at Mount Sinai for a year. Everything's in order. It's a year of getting their life a new life. A life where instead of looking toward getting deliverance from Egypt, they've been delivered from Egypt. And now they've been instructed at Mount Sinai with God's law, and now they're going forward to become the people of destiny they're meant to be, just like us. Chapter 9, verse 1 reads like this. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness at Sinai in the first month of the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, saying, let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all of its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. So Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. Now there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse, a dead body. So they could not keep the Passover on that day. And, and they came before Moses and Aaron that day. And those men said to him, we became defiled by a human corpse. Why are we kept from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the children of Israel? And Moses said to them, stand still that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, if any one of you or your posterity, your offspring is unclean because of a corpse, a dead body, or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover. On the 14th day of the second month, at twilight, they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break one of its bones. According to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. But the man, and we can say the person, who is clean and not on a journey and ceases to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off from among his people because he did not bring the offering to the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And... If a stranger dwells among you and would keep the Lord's Passover, he must do so according to the rite of the Passover and according to its ceremony. You shall have one ordinance, both for stranger and the native of the land. This is an awesome passage, and we had a great time with it on Tuesday night. So again, it's a year. It's time to go back to the Passover. The Passover for the, for the Jews in the Old Testament, and this is only the second one. This is being reminded of the beginning, of salvation, of a lamb dying in your place. This is being reminded of the necessity of blood over your doorpost, over your home, over your life, over your marriage, and over your family. This is being reminded that bitter herbs, there is bitterness in times of life, and God knows bitterness. He's tasted bitterness. The Lord laid upon Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all. And through many tribulations, we must inherit the kingdom of God. Those bitter herbs are a reminder to us that life at times is bitter, but the tree of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, makes things sweet when we abide in him. 
that no bone is to be broken for the lamb represents Jesus Christ on the cross, that none of his bones were broken. And that the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be kept for seven days at the same time, bread without leaven, signifying a sanctified life, a holy life, a consecrated life, a distinct and different life from all the surrounding peoples of every other nation in the world. That was Passover. It's as if you got saved at a Harvest Crusade and you went back to Harvest Crusades every year and you would just cry and smile as you watched thousands of people go forward because it reminds you of how you were when you went forward. It's it's Bethel. It's returning to the first love. It's being reminded of the first fruits, the very first thing. Repentance, faith, lamb, blood, bitter herbs, unleavened bread. It's all there. And once a year, now the Jewish men, remember, they would go to Jerusalem three times a year for the three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle, for different purposes. But only one really spoke of the beginning because Passover was the beginning, because that was the night that God passed over them, but punished the firstborn of Egypt. That was the night God drew a distinction between being slaves in Egypt or being free to the Lord. For the one who sins is a slave to sin, but the son sets you free, you are free indeed. That is the night that everything changed. That is the night, in a sense, typologically, they were born again. That is the night, as a people, they passed from death to life, no longer slaves, but free. That's what happened that night. Not under judgment, like the Egyptians in their unbelief and their false gods and false beliefs, but under the blood and with the lamb and with the unleavened bread. The distinction of darkness and light or death and life. And that is the distinction that we have tonight through faith in Jesus Christ from the world. For it is Jesus who said he didn't come into the world to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. But he came into the world to save the world. And God's not a taker, he's a giver. God so loved the world, he gave his son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Remember in the 80s at football games, they'd always show John 3.16 in the end zone? No one really does that anymore, do they? They used to do that. I remember at, at basketball games in the 80s when you watch the Lakers, there was someone behind the bench that had the Mark 8, what will profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? I guess that kind of came and went. God's a giver, and he's a caller. And this is that reminder. So they've been one year discipled with the Lord. They've been given the moral law, the, re- the religious law, how to worship God, and then the civil law, how to live and conduct themselves with law and order for a society. And they've built the tabernacle. Everyone knows their place. Everyone knows their role. They know their position, what they do, when they do it, how to do it. They are the people of God. And they're there and they're ready. And now, a year later, how different does the second Passover look? It's kind of looked different, right? We can't be the same person a year after we got saved than the person we were when we got saved. And we can't be the same person December 31st in 2000 than the person we were on December 31st, 2019. That is unacceptable. Because with the Lord Jesus Christ, as with life we know, we're either growing or dying. And they can't be the same people. Jesus doesn't call people to be churchgoers. He calls people to be disciples. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Do you see? So Jesus said, follow me. And we lay down our, our life, the one we can't keep, to take on his life, the one we can't lose. For many are called, but few are chosen. And narrow is the way that leads to life, and few enter thereby. And so here they are, their second Passover. As you would say, or as I would say, it's not the first rodeo. They've done this before. They've done this before, and hopefully they've grown. But alas, we know that those over 20, unfortunately, 
had not, but that's not our Bible study tonight. Because a year later, they're going to not enter in because they don't believe the promises. But there's always hope for the next generation. And where one woman or one man rejects the hope, there's another woman or another man who will respond to it. Or as my son Luke said to me on the phone yesterday, Dad, it really is a narrow gate. And we can never forget that. It really is a narrow gate. And our job is to proclaim a truth that those who God has chosen and called and elected according to his foreknowledge will respond to the gospel message through our life and through our words. And even so, amen, it is. It is a narrow gate. We should, we should be reminded this night, the lamb, the blood, the bitter herb, the no broken bones, and the oven leavened bread, that is a narrow gate. And we don't need to make it more narrow than it is. But Jesus never said, come follow me and be a churchgoer. He said, lay down your life and call me Lord. And you will learn from me as a disciple, which means disciplined learner from the one you're learning from. But it's their second Passover, and they're different people. They should be. Their knowledge of God is greater and deeper. Their knowledge of what God expects from them is clearer and more refined. I hope it is for you, too, in 2020. Is your knowledge of God greater and deeper, personally? November 2020 than January 2020. Is your understanding of the lamb, the blood, the bitter herbs, the unbroken bones, and the unleavened bread, is it deeper now than it was in January? I hope it is. For many people, it's not. And that's part of our message tonight. Enter by the narrow gate. So here they are. They're going to do this religious feast collectively together on a national level, kind of like Thanksgiving or Christmas, how Americans are. There's traditions, right? And it's, 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 for them, it's a national identity. The Amalekites don't have this identity. The Amorites don't have this identity. The Egyptians don't have this identity. This is their identity. It's like us being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is our identity. It's like us breaking bread and, and the cup. That is our identity. For Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is their identity. It's a flashpoint of their faith and the beginnings of their faith nationally, collectively, in a covenant, but still it always comes back to the individual, doesn't it? Personally. So here they are. They're going to have a national Passover, second one, and people are going to participate personally. And like many people going to church in the holidays or just in general, they go to church because that's what they do. It's like paying taxes. That's what they do. It's like paying taxes. Maybe this one hour of good will offset the rest of the week of bad. When these people participate in Passover, there are people are just doing it because they're religious. It's like people taking communion at church sometimes are religious. You know, when I was at Calvary Costa Mesa, for example, and Pastor Chuck, we'd pass out those trays to 1,800 people on a Wednesday night, still when it was the zenith and the apex of the ministry there in the early 2000s, and everyone took communion. And I was a little bit uncomfortable with that because I knew... The odds were that there are a number of people there that were not born again and should not be taking communion and were taking communion only because they wanted to fit in or not feel awkward to not take it. That's why we give you a choice to take communion. We don't, we don't create an awkwardness where we pass the communion to you. Now, I understand why you would do that, so I'm not saying anything ill against Pastor Chuck or Calvary, but I think it's better that you have a choice. So you can hear and walk out or you can come forward and take and whatever. Because it always comes down to individual faith, right? The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the hall of faith, is not about a collective people having faith. It's about individual people having faith. It's always going to be about individual faith. 
When we step into eternity, it's not going to be about my faith being transferred to you. It's going to be about your faith for you before the Lord. And I can't transfer your faith to me. I'm going to stand or fall on my own faith, as we all are. So during this Passover, they're participating as a nation, about 2.5 million people, but it still came down to the individual. What do they think of the bread and the cup, if you will? What do they think about the lamb and the blood and the bitter herb and the unleavened bread? What you say about these things? And they all had to decide. So now we have this background, this historical context. And now we have these guys. Listen, with 2.5 million people, people are dying every day, right? And someone has to do something with dead bodies. They can't stay in the camp. They were burying people every day. If you, you know, when people die, someone has to come get the body. And if you've ever been in that situation, I have a number of times. I'm thankful for professional people that come and get the body and take the body. And I've seen bodies of people I love be pronounced dead. My mom, less than a year ago. I've seen bodies. I've helped carry bodies of people I love out of the house. My mother-in-law, 20 years ago. I've seen recently my father-in-law's body after he passed away. And they were coming to get him, and they were making phone calls. Which place is going to come get him? This is life, and people die. And you know, when you deal with life and death, some people just, they deal with it like a business. And it's just life and death. But someone's got to deal with dead bodies. And when you're, there are professional morgue people. There's, that's what they are. That's what they do. They're always dealing with grieving people. So these guys, they're dealing with a dead body. At some point on this day, for the second Passover, this day, people are like, this is it's a Passover. It's kind of reverent. It's kind of serious. I know it feels a little different this time because we're not slaves in Egypt. And these guys, they got to carry a dead body somewhere. And, you know, in the midst of dealing with the grief of death, they want to come have Passover. Now, some people might deal with a dead body and like, I don't get I don't even care. It's like we just cease to exist, you know, like, boom, you know. People think like that, although very few people really believe that. Because Ecclesiastes said God's put eternity in our hearts. So very people, very few people actually believe that. Because he's put eternity in our hearts. That's what he says. But these guys on this day have a problem. They've touched a dead body and they want to go to church. They want to have communion. They want to sing songs to the Lord. They want to break bread. They want fellowship. They want to hear the word of God. And they handle a dead body and they can't. You understand my context for us. And so they come to Moses and say, hey, you know, please, come on, man. Somebody's got to do with dead bodies, but we still want to have Passover. Can you go in your tent there and talk to God? Because, you know, Moses had his tent, his talking to God tent. And Moses like, okay, this is new territory. We don't really know what to do here. All right, we can do that. Stay here. Stay here. Wait right now. I'm going I'm to go talk with the Lord right now. Because Moses was the mediator. He's the only one that God spoke to that way in this context to those people. So Moses comes out and he makes this declaration that these are the, this is the flexible guidelines. And then he adds more stuff that they weren't even asking about. And so in all this, we see that in this law, because this is all pertaining to the law of God, we find little nuances, which leads me to bring to this thought to process to the forefront of our minds right now. Some people are about the letter of the law, but if you really understand the heart of God, he's about the spirit of the law. Even with the Sabbath, when the Pharisees fought Jesus over the Sabbath, he purposely healed on the Sabbath day to show them that they're all about the letter of the law, but God's about the spirit of the law. And the Sabbath wasn't to put man in bondage. The Sabbath was to bless man. 
And Jesus made that clear. And then he reproved him and said, if you'd only known what this means, that I desire mercy over sacrifice. So it's really important that we understand with God's heart, there's a spirit of the law. The law does not change. God is not changing character. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God is light, and him knows darkness at all. And let God be true, and every man a liar. He is the law. It's his universe, his physical laws, his spiritual laws, his heaven and hell laws. They're all in place, and they are not going to change. But in the human experience, how he deals with each one of us is so personal. How he deals with nations and societies and families, it's so personal, for Jesus knows the hairs on our head. And so we see how the spirit of the law works in each of our lives in the context and the template of the letter of the law. The Holy Spirit working and moving. For the law of God is not written on stone tablets. It is written on our hearts of flesh by the Holy Spirit. And in this text, I see this week the Spirit of God, the heart of God, in the law of God, which is perfect and beautiful. And it's not canceled for a standard of right and wrong. It doesn't save us. But the Spirit, we fulfill God's law by the Spirit and by receiving his love and showing his love. For we know if we love, we fulfill the law. But a lot of the Western church and the American church makes a great mistake to thinking that somehow because we're saved by grace, we're not accountable for God's standards of truth and righteousness within his holy law. That's a huge mistake. We have settled into a very cheap grace by 2020 in the church in the United States of America. And if one thing I'm certain of, of many things this year, is he's shaking us up from flippant grace to true grace. We're being sifted. So let's begin with the men who touch the dead body with the spirit of the law. These guys are interesting, and they remind us If the things of God matter to us, God knows it and he values it. If we value the things of God, if they're precious to us and we esteem them in our hearts, like if we value prayer time with the Lord, if we value the morning, that little time, whether it's a daily bread devotional or that time in the word, if we make time, draw near to the Lord and he'll draw near to us. If we value those things, he knows that. If we're seeking the relationship with him to go deeper and stronger, he knows that. And if we're playing church and we're hypocrites and we're religious, he knows that too. We'll get to that in a moment. But God values, God knows the heart and he knows the motive of our hearts. And when we, when we value spiritual things, it, it, it has value to the Lord. It's like with our kids. If you have kids, like when you do special things for them and they really appreciate it, it brings you pleasure and joy. Our granddaughter, Zippy, loves unicorns. It's all about unicorns right now. Just loves the unicorns. And Jennifer, the, the grandma that she is, we, you know, we're always, you know, you can get a lot of good unicorn stuff that's pretty affordable through Target and other places, right? So one day, Jennifer was at work, but Zippy and Velzy came by. It was, it was when my dad... Because I can't take my, I can't go to visit my dad, but I can take him out. We'd gone to the dentist. We brought him home. I gave him a shave. The great grandkids came over. It's the most wonderful day ever, happiest day ever. And uh, but the the package that Jennifer ordered for Zippy, this little unicorn doll, 
It's like that stretcher with the unicorn thing, and it's the cutest thing ever. And Zippy just loved it. And I took a picture of her saying thank you to Nini and sent it to Jennifer at work, like a video for her at work that very moment. But like she values it, and and, and she she doesn't want to be separated from a little unicorn doll. And so it means, it means more to us. Like, you know, when you give a kid something and they just toss aside like 20 other gifts on Christmas, it doesn't have the same impact for you, the giver. But if you give something to someone like that and it takes, has such great value, it, it brings you joy. If, Zip, if we bless Zippy and she values what we've done for her and it's reciprocated, it brings us joy and the relationship goes deeper. What we see with these guys and how the Lord responded, we'll get to in a moment. Passion matters. Priorities matter. Pursuits matter. You know, we always say you can just follow the money trail, the energy trail, the time trail. I have found in almost 60 years of life, I have time to do what I really want to do. I have money to spend what I really want to get. Even when we only have a little. If I want Skittles, I can buy them for 99 cents at 7-Eleven, right? You, you, you know... You know, people are broke and you see them buying cigarettes and alcohol at Albertsons, right? Like if you, you, whatever defines you and is you, you'll find money. Like you see people, you know, getting all the, tra- the, the bottles out of the trash cans in Huntington. They turn them in and they get a bottle. You know what is driving them. Not all people do, but many do in that case. And it's not hard to know what we're living for because we show it day to day. And if our heart is with the Lord and we show a passion for the things of the Lord, it will show itself and it will be pleasing to God. God looks at the heart. The heart is way more important than the, the, the actions or reactions that we show because the heart's right. Generally, most actions will be good and the reactions would be good. What is fascinating to me about this idea that God, God values people who touch dead bodies and want to have Passover. That's what I'm saying. And he compares them to people who can have Passover but don't care. That's where we're going with this. But these guys, God's like, hey, I get, they get the makeup. You know, when you, when you do the college, you know, the SATs, you miss the one, you get a makeup, right? Like a makeup. This is the makeup. Hey, you miss Passover, but same time, one month later, exactly. All same, all same rules, all same things, but you can do it a month later. And not only that, if you're away on a trip the first time, you can do that too. You don't have to just be touching a dead body. You could be on a trip. Either way, we can do this a month later. It's a makeup. Like in high school, it's a makeup. You can do it. You can make it up. We got a plan for you. This is the spirit of God, the spirit of God within the law of God. That flexibility where you see that God cares more about the heart than the outward actions. And we only need to think of a few people before we move on, but this is worth our meditation and contemplation. Rahab, the harlot, she's a prostitute. She lives in a wicked city with wicked people and she sleeps with them. I mean, what a tough lot in life. I mean, who knows her story, how that ended up. But Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab had a family in the city, for her family was saved when they came in her place when Jericho was destroyed. But when the spies came to Rahab's house, the two Jewish spies that Joshua would send out 40 years after this, 39 years after this, she hid them. Then the whole city was looking for them. She told them, we're all in fear of you. We know God is with you. And God was confirming to the Israelite spies what he had already said to Joshua, you're going to roll these people. And she helped them escape. And then they came to her house, but they said, you know, where are the spies? And she, she lied. She lied. Now, one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not bear false witness, right? When my wife was working on her bachelor's degree in psychology, 
there at Hope International, she had a class on moral ethics, and we watched the movie Hotel Rwanda with the Hootsies and the Tootsies and the genocide that went on between the two tribes. Fascinating movie. Nick Nolte's in it. He's the UN guy. He's always a rule follower, but doesn't really help the people who are being murdered. He's a rule follower, but he follows the UN rules. Whereas there's the guy that's the, the, the one black actor, really good actress in other movies. He runs a hotel and he risks his life, he risks everything to save the people that are being murdered in the genocide. He's breaking the law, but saving lives. He's keeping the law, but letting lives perish. And so this whole movie for my wife, and I was really into this, is a moral dilemma. What's really right? To obey the UN, the law? Oh, Romans 13! Like people would say, there's people that would tell, Romans 13, don't, don't, don't rescue these people that are being murdered in this genocide. Or is it the heart of God and the spirit of God and the character of God to rescue those who are led to death and destruction? That was an easy determination for me on which person I would be in that movie. I'm not the UN guy under law, enforcing law that doesn't rescue people from the innocent. I'm Corey Tim Boom. I'll risk my life to save the Jews. I'm not a Lutheran, lukewarm Lutheran, putting the Jews on trains to death camps. And these are the things we must decide in our own minds and hearts about who we are and what defines us in our faith. God looks at the heart. And Rahab lied to save lives. And for this lie, she is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Rahab lied. And for her lie, she's in Hebrews 11. So has God flipped his character? God has lied to him as no darkness at all. Or is there a spirit of the law within the law that tells us to do right is always the right thing? Like Martin Luther King Jr. said, it's always the right time to do the right thing. How about David and the showbread? We just went through Leviticus. Hey, one thing that's really clear in Leviticus, if you're not a priest, don't look at the showbread, don't touch the showbread, and definitely do not eat the showbread. What did David do when he was fleeing from Saul? He shows up at the tabernacle, lies. Oh, I'm doing an errand for my father-in-law, King Saul. Oh, okay. Yeah, do you have my sword that I killed Goliath with? Yeah, it's right here. Hey, we're starving. Do you have some food? Here's the showbread. He eats the showbread. (laughs) David is from the tribe of Judah. He takes the showbread, which is only for the Levites. We've been studying this for two months, outdoors and indoors. He takes the showbread and gives it to his homies, the, the mighty men of David. They all eat the showbread. They deceive the priest. The priest gets murdered, and his, all of his other priests get murdered when Saul finds out through Dog the Edomite. There's a psalm about it, and it's there in Samuel. And yet, God says David is a man after his own heart. Jesus does not talk about David defeating Goliath. Jesus does talk about David eating the showbread. It's not the letter of the law. It's the spirit of the law. It's the character of God and the heart of God. That's where Jesus said, I desire mercy. That's what I desire is mercy. See, God looks at the heart. David did so many bad things, and yet Our Lord and Savior, God himself, who made the universe, took the title Son of David. David is a liar, a murderer, (laughs) an adulterer, 
A prideful man that takes a census when even his, his evil general, his henchmen told him, don't do this, it's a bad idea. And yet, Jesus is called the son of David. God looks at the heart. And if our heart's in a good place and our motives are in a good place, that means far more than anything else. In Pastor Chuck's book, Arminianism versus Calvinism, that he wrote 40 years ago, in the end of the book he said, show me your, do- your doctrine by the fruit of your life. Because I would rather have a good heart with the wrong action than a, the right action with a bad heart. Because my heart is easy to steer, but if my ba- heart's in a bad place, that's a really much more profound thing to deal with. God looks at the heart. And these guys touching dead bodies, God's like, I, I appreciate this. What did Moses expect when he the tent? So like, Lord, these guys out here, man, they've been, you know, it's cooties, man. It's like they're touching dead bodies. And Lord's like, hey, I got a plan for them. God looks at the heart. And God knows our heart. And I just remind us, keep our hearts pure. Keep our hearts in a good place. Keep our hearts, as we're all being tested, as we're all being tested in 2020, let's really want what God wants. Let's really, if it matters to God, let it matter to us. His word, singing, fellowship, giving, serving. If we seek, we will find. This is all a test in 2020. We're being sifted. We're being separated. We're being weighed in the balances. There's not a time for excuses. Our life is our life. Our time and our energy speak for themselves. Fear God, not man or anything else. Serve the Lord and praise his name. And let him search your heart and keep our hearts in a good place. Now we also see here that God looks and knows the heart, which is kind of intermingled what I was just saying, but it's a little bit different. Because he, he says here, knowing our motives... He says that they can still do everything the way you do it, and you do it right. So he he allows a situation where grace is at work. Okay, so we can come a month later, and he knows our heart. We can come a month later, but we still need to do it the way he said it to, to do it. And as we've talked about, David, as we talk about Rahab, what we see here is there's a grace factor in things. And again, comparing with Saul, I find this very interesting that we're David would find grace where there's faith, there's grace, and there's obedience as a whole. But where there's pride and religion, there's no grace. Because again, on the outside, Saul does not look like a bad guy, King Saul. He didn't really do a whole lot that was bad. I mean, he wiped out the Amalekites. He kept the sheep. Sure, that's no big deal. But because he kept the sheep, God cut him off from being the anointed one. Like over the sheep. Like, that seems kind of harsh. But see, God knows the heart. And so he's not going to change. God is light, him is no darkness, like I said earlier. And But as grace is applied, when we have faith, the grace keeps coming, and he's working in and through that and meeting us as we seek to obey, as we seek to do the right thing. So he knows our heart, like we saw with the men, and he, and he looks at the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. But then he says, when you come that month later, you're going to do it exactly what I told you. So we're, he's meeting us where we're at to bring us where he wants us to be. He's making accommodations in his calendar. I'm giving you an extra 30 days exactly on this day. He's given us a second chance to come to church, to sing praises, to break bread. He's given them a second chance in another way. And our God is the God of second chances for those who have faith and those who properly appropriate grace. To Peter, Jesus said, when Peter said, do we forgive someone seven times? And he goes, no, seven times 70. 
Was Jesus teaching Peter that he's going to forgive someone 490 times? Or was Jesus teaching Peter that Jesus is going to forgive Peter 490 times? Is it Peter who's going to really count like that? Or is it God who removes our sins to the east from the west? Because it was Peter who denied the Lord three times. You see, when there's faith and grace, we keep moving toward obedience. From the spirit of the law, we end up obeying the law by the spirit of the law. And with Peter, you think about this, what a contrast he is to Judas. If Saul is a contrast to David, how about Peter and Judas being a contrast? Because it was Peter who said, denied the Lord three times. But then it was the Peter that Jesus said, do you love me? Yes, then feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, then tend my flock. Do you love me? You know I love you, then feed my sheep. And it was Peter who is the running point in the book of Acts all the way up to to Paul in chapter 13. Why does one person go hang himself with no chance at repentance? Judas. So the betrayer gets no second chance and he just hangs himself. But the one who's got faith and sinks on the Sea of Galilee, puts his foot in his mouth all the time and denies the Lord three times, he gets to tell the Lord three times he loves him, and then he gets commissioned to be the leader, Petros, the little rock that leads the church. It's amazing grace. But it does move toward obedience. So though the Lord meets us where we're at, and he appreciates our motives, and he searches our heart, and he appreciates that. In the end, he'll, he'll be flexible, and he'll let things work a certain way. He'll meet us where we're at. Like, again, Peter, when he needs to pay the temple tax, Jesus said, to whom do the sons of earth pay their tribute to? You know, well, not, the, the, the symbolism or the, the lesson from that text where he says that is like, of course, we're heavenly children. We don't really do this, but lest we offend, pay the temple tax. And so it's to a fisherman that he catches the fish and the coins in the fish, right? Like, that's... Where there's faith, there's grace. There's personal lessons. All those things for Peter. And that's what God's doing in our life. He's taking us forth from our mistakes. Let the redeemed of the Lord rejoice in the Lord. And for us, his mercies are new every morning. They're not new every morning for people that hate God and blaspheme the name of Jesus. Now, there are people out there waiting to be saved because we're still here. And the redeemed will be saved. And we need to to trust God to reach people and let us be used of him to reach people. But for the redeemed that are saved, we have faith and our faith is growing and we have grace and it's being applied and it's taking us forward just like David in his journeys, just like Peter in his journeys. And yet it's always moving toward obedience and toward the character of God and the heart of God. That's what God is doing. He's moving us toward his character and his heart. He's teaching us that he is light and him is no darkness at all. He's teaching us that there is no other way but his way. That's what he's teaching us. His grace is endless for those who are his children and are adopted into his family, Romans 8. But his wrath is on the children of wrath who are given over to depravity and darkened hearts and darkened minds who not only do evil but approve those who do evil. Not only do evil but they approve and check the box of the evil, of the evildoers. The grace is not for them. Now, they can find grace through repentance and faith. But where there's faith, not religion, 
where there's faith in Jesus, where there's the Holy Spirit, we get the grace, and he's moving us toward these things. So I said, you can come a month later. He's the God of the second chance, the 490 chances, the three times you deny me, three times you can tell me you love me. But in all that, he's moving us toward obedience, toward the lamb, toward the blood, toward the bitter herbs, toward the unbroken bones, and toward the feast of unleavened bread. For Christ is our Passover, and we keep the feast of unleavened bread, we are told in the New Testament, that sanctified life. So as Romans 6 says, the grace of God shows us meeting us where we're at and bringing us through the different things that we face that are challenging where we're trying to do the right thing. Our motives are good, but the result is bad. It's still moving us toward obedience and faithfulness to become like Christ in our character and who we are and what we reflect in our society to the people closest to us and around us. But we have faith in Jesus and we have grace that is applied over and over. And, and why? Well, Romans chapter 9 says it best. Hey, if God wants to put Pharaoh under wrath, he's under wrath. Well, I don't like the Pharaoh's under wrath. Well, who are you, old man? Will the thing on the clay, the clay wheel say to the potter, what are you making? You know, Romans 9 is a gnarly chapter. Because all the people think they know the mind of the Lord, or why would God allow this, or why would God allow that? Why would God, you're like, how could a God of love and this and everything? Listen, you know what God says to all of them? Take a look, get in line. Romans 9, hey, I harden who I want to harden, and I save who I want to save. Now get back to the Great Commission. It's that simple. It really is that simple. We are the redeemed. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the house of God. And we're headed for heaven. Our treasures are in heaven. And all that we're being sifted through is preparing us for a heavenly service. Our glory is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And in the end... It's like the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. We are going to the new Narnia, and the two cannot be compared. And all that God's teaching us in this experience is to serve him in the next one. This is boot camp. We need to pass every test as best we can and grow and learn and go forward. So though God meets us in the spirit of the law, he meets us there. He looks and knows at our heart, and in the end, he's moving us toward obedience. He's still moving us toward the ordinances of the Passover, to the things that are right, and that's what he's doing. But then there's that warning that if there's this final warning that he's going to always he's going to always be true to his word. And there's this final warning that, hey, if there's a man that can do the feast and, and they don't do it, they're cut off. And that's the warning to everyone in America. That's the warning to everyone on this planet. That's the warning to everyone who lightly esteems the things of God and mocks the things of God and rejects the gospel and the, the work of God through the son, Jesus Christ. There are so many people that go to churches in America that do not believe Jesus is the only way. They do not believe the Bible is true. They do not believe a lot of sin is sin. They believe it's, it's choices, that God made them that way. They don't believe, they, don't, they just don't even think critically at all. They live in an alternative universe in how they perceive Jesus Christ. They create a Jesus of their own imagination based upon the evils of their heart and the lust of their hearts. And that's exactly what the Israelites did in the promised land when they got there. So they worship Molech and the asterisk. But they still went to the temple. They still kept the Passover. Let God be true and every man a liar. Because God is true and we're all liars. And God has lied to him in no darkness at all. The person who can keep the Passover and doesn't, that person's cut off. So what God would say to the churches, don't come to church and play church. There are seven letters to seven churches in Revelation. And if anything he says, he says, repent and don't play church with me. Either you're mine or you're not. 
The cross is serious. The blood of the God on the cross for humanity is serious stuff. There's joy in the Lord, and there's, there's abundant life that he gives us, but it overflows from the seriousness and the reverence of God sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. God is separating people playing church in 2020. And he's doing us a favor, because who knows what 2021 is going to bring in the future. Don't play church. It's not about churchgoers in 2020. There's going to be millions of less churchgoers in 2021 than those who started 2020. So many people, so many people just need one excuse not to come to church. They got lots of them. So if you want to watch sports in empty stadiums, do that. If you want to support people who do evil things, do that. If you want to give your money to evil people and spend on evil things, do that. It's your choice. This is madness that we're in right now. This whole planet. But it's a sifting and it's a separating. God says, this is how I do Passover. I will meet you with grace and I will meet you in this area where you're at, touching dead bodies defiled and meeting you because I know your heart. But in the end, wherever I meet you, I'm bringing you to the cross because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the fire but through him. And that's, that's our universe. That's the universe we were born into. That's the universe we'll die into when we step into eternity. It'll never change. When the Lord comes back that day in all that glory and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, it'll still be, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That has never been accepted as a whole in human society because it's a narrow gate. And the blood is an offense. Paul said he preached the gospel lest he not offend because the gospel is an offense. He became all things to all men, but the blood is always an offense. Why do you think the church has spent 30 years in this lukewarm state of taking the blood out of the songs and not preaching the blood? Because it is an offense. But so is mocking God and blaspheming Jesus and changing his character to match the, the gods of our own minds of lust and deceit and evil. Let God be true and every man a liar. In the end, he says, even the stranger, I'll let come have Passover with me. Isn't this beautiful? It's like a happy ending to this text. Hey, the stranger, the stranger, the stranger, like you're not Jewish by blood. The stranger, listen, you want to keep Passover? You can have Passover, but this is the way it works. The lamb, the blood, the bitter herbs, no broken bones and unleavened bread. You want to be saved is the way it works. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. It's there. So we close with this thought. Jesus Christ is the center of the universe. And he is over everything. And he is sifting his church. This has nothing to do with human governments. This has everything to do with the kingdom. He is sifting and he is separating. So let's make sure we're in the right place as this sifting takes place. Let us hold fast to our faith. Let us not grow weary and get more reverent and more fervent as all the more as we see the day approaching. That's who we need to be. That's what we need to be. And we must know that we will always be a minority on this planet and we'll always be called to serve, to love, to forgive. We're gonna be always be called to do those things and to obey and to grow and to go forward. That's who we are. And we will always be a healthy church if we remain, that's who we are. But if we compromise on any of these things, for our sins, for human government, or anything in between, the devil himself outside that front door, 
we will fail in our obligation, our calling, and our equipping to fulfill the Great Commission. We will always be the church, and we're under the authority of Jesus Christ, who is the final authority, and he has told us to preach the gospel and make disciples of every nation. And to that end, we will continue to be who we are here in our Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth with everything we have. So don't be moved by evil men and women, but stand firm in a glorious, perfect Savior who is coming to prove every word and to test every thought and every motive and every intent. That's who we serve. It's Passover, and we want to partake of Passover, and we invite others to partake of Passover, and we don't see it flippantly. That's the lesson of this text.